The book of Revelation can be an incredibly confusing and even frightening read, but it wasn't meant to be either. In fact, behind the violent and alarming imagery of Revelation lies a world of beauty as we see the self-sacrificial love of Christ forever triumph over the darkness we encounter all too often in our world. Join us as we take a deeper look at what the disciple John wrote and why. Dispel common misconceptions of what it all means and celebrate the glorious future it promises in our series, Rescuing Revelation. How you doing this morning? Good to see all of you here on this nice, balmy, balmy Minnesota day. Hallelujah! The winter is over! We hope. All right, I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, part-time drummer. Uh, it's a lot of fun, but does my hair look funky? I have no idea what my hair looks like, but I know I gotta, I'm all sweaty, and i got to put that thing on, so it must be kind of matted down, and it's like all, but you know, when you have curly hair, you can't tell anyway, so that's, you know, the nice thing. I don't have to get a haircut about twice a year, because I just pack it in, and it's uh, really cost affordable. There you go. So, we're uh, at the uh, Book of Revelation these days. Streaming through this thing, talking about end time stuff and how that's not what the book of Revelation is primarily about. What we're seeing is that the book of Revelation, at least the perspective I'm taking on this, is that it's mainly it's about events that are happening in the first century. That sets patterns throughout history, but they're primarily about first century events. But it also communicates, in the context of first century events, um, uh, cosmic realities, a warfare that's going on all around us. And so it applies to all of God's people from the cross until the very end of history. But the last three chapters of Revelation are primarily about the end. It gives us a vision of how this whole thing wraps up, how, how God's purposes for world history are consummated, and we'll see here this morning that it's absolutely glorious. But even this vision of the end is not just a vision about the end. Uh, it is a vision that is there, it's beautiful, it's magnificent, but it's there to motivate us to live right now a certain way. And it's not just a vision that we're supposed to be waiting for. It's, it's, a, it's a, a reality that is already coming into being. And uh, it's something that we are to partner with God in bringing about. That God's will will be done now on earth as it is in heaven. But it's, it's, it's uh, oriented towards the end. And like everything else in the book of Revelation, it's full of, of, of rich symbolism. Um, it's not the kind of thing you should take literally. This is an apocalyptic book, and, and they always are using symbols. And so, for example, uh, in the chapter that we'll be looking at here today, chapter 21, you find, starting with verse uh, 10, uh, a bunch of numbers given uh, for the the, uh, measurements of the city. But the the measurements, the numbers, you remember in apocalyptic literature, numbers are never numbers. They're, or rarely numbers, they're they're usually concepts. It's a Picasso-like, symbolic way of saying something. And in fact, if you just know some of the basic things about how what numbers meant to these folks... Uh, you can easily figure out what John is saying. So, for example, just remember that three is the symbol of perfection. And uh, ten is a symbol of completeness. Because it's the highest number you can get to without having to start repeating numbers. Um, a thousand stands for something that's indefinitely long or indefinitely large. Um, you've got uh, four, which uh, stood for uh, comprehensiveness. Like they, they, they talked about the four corners of the earth. And, and so it means it, it's all-inclusive. And all the numbers you find in Revelation 21 are multiples of those numbers I just gave you. And then 12, of course, stands for uh, God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel and or the 12 uh, apostles. And so most of the numbers in Revelation break down along those lines. John's communicating something in a, in a very symbolic way, and it's powerful if you understand uh, the, the, the symbols there. 
Now, the, the, the vision we're going to be looking at today in chapter 21 centers on this city and this bride. In fact, it, it centers on a city that is a bride and a bride that is a city. Figure that one out. And so we're calling this the New Jerusalem Bride. That's got some powerful things to, to teach us. Before I start reading the verse, I'd like to pray here. Abba Father, I just am so appreciative for all these folks here in this auditorium and for all the folks that are watching or listening on podcasts. I, got, I just pray, I, I, I lavishly bless them and pour out your spirit, Lord. Be working here, God, in our hearts and our minds, in my mouth, Lord God. Infuse this word with your authority uh, to, and your power to build the kingdom in our lives, to do what words normally can't do, certainly what my speech can't do. Uh, but God, be present here and present to our, our podcast community, uh, whatever they're doing. I pray, Lord God, you sow seeds in our heart that transform us to be more like lamb-like warriors. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. If you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to get that message. Uh, we really touched on a key aspect of the book of Revelation, how John takes violent symbols, and uh, symbols that are in the, were traditionally in the Old Testament and the other apocalyptic literature, uh, seen as, as symbolizing violence, but he subverts them, turns them on their head. And uh, it's, it's really a, a crucial aspect of unlocking what this book is, is all about. If, if you don't understand that, you'll tend to take it literally. And, 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 and you'll tend to take it as a very violent book. And so Jesus ends up being very violent. God ends up being very violent. When the point of the book, once you understand it's an apocalyptic book and how John uses symbols, the point of the book is the opposite of that. It's not Babylon's kind of power that wins. It's the Lamb's power that wins. It's the power to lay down your life and transform hearts by the beauty of your self-sacrificial love. Okay, so here's what it says in 21.1. And I'm just going to get through four verses today. Uh, Most of the message will be taken up with the first two verses, but I'll just read the verse and then make a couple comments. Or a couple hundred comments, as the case may be. Uh, It says, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, this new heaven, or new earth, I, I want it to be clear that that... This is a renewed earth. It's not a replacement earth. It's not like God's going to destroy this physical world and then create something brand new. It's rather uh, a, a, the renewed earth. It's the same earth, but in a renewed state. Some people read 2 Peter 3, where it says that God is going to sort of scorch the earth with fire. Uh, and, and they take that to mean that God's going to incinerate this world and then create a brand new one, and that will be heaven. I've heard people say that it won't be a physical creation like this one is, as though there's something wrong with the physical creation. Uh, so they have a replacement earth. But see, fire in Scripture uh, is is u- usually used as a metaphor for uh, purification. It does burn up stuff. It does consume stuff. But it consumes stuff in order to salvage what God wants to salvage. It burns away what should not be there. All right? And so it's a purifying sort of a thing. Uh, Paul says that we're all going to pass through this purifying fire. In fact, in Hebrews it says that God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. It's about the fire of his passionate love, the fire of his true character. And Paul says that on the judgment day, when that true character is manifested, we will all pass through that fire on our way to our eternal dwelling place. And he says that whatever is about us that is is built on wood or hay or straw or stubble, it will be burned up. But whatever about us is precious stones, gold and silver, things like that, that, that will be purified. And now we're fit to go into the kingdom. Nothing unclean goes into the kingdom. So this is like the shower we take before we get into the kingdom. Uh, it completes the process of sanctification and discipleship here. And um, we all pass through that fire. 
Our God is a consuming fire. So this is good news to those who have a heart for God. It's bad news for those who are dead set against God and will not return and repent. Are you going to hold out to the bitter end? Because, see, wood burns up because it's not compatible with the fire. But stone is compatible with the fire, and so it gets purified by it. If you have a heart that is compatible with the character of God, then that very character, that very love is going to purify you. Uh, But if you are dead set against it, then you're incompatible with the reality of who God is, and that is your judgment. And the natural consequence of that is to be consumed. So it's good news to those who are, are, are for God. It should be a word of warning to anyone who's, who's, who's resisting God. This is the time to yield and to bend and to start making yourself compatible with that, that character and trusting in, the, in, in, in Jesus Christ. So everything is going to be purified on the day of judgment. And whatever needs to be burned up is going to be burned up. And whatever then is, can be salvaged will be salvaged and purified. But I want us to see that it's the same us at the end of the fire process that is there at the beginning of the process. It's the same us... It's just perfected. There'll be a perfected Greg Boyd in heaven. But it's still going to be me. I, it'll, I'll have the same identity, it, but it'll be perfected. And you probably won't even notice the difference, really. I mean, <laughs> that, that is a good joke, isn't it? <laughs> My wife would be choking right now. Uh, but it, 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 there's a continuity there. It's like Jesus, it was the same Jesus after the resurrection as before the resurrection, but it was transformed. He now had that transformed uh, body. So we will be transformed, we'll be perfected and purified, uh, but it will still be us. In the same way, the earth is going to be perfected, but it will be the same earth. This isn't a replacement earth, this is just a renewed earth. And then John says that on this renewed earth, there's no more sea. I remember when I first became a Christian when I was 17, of course, we immersed ourselves in the book of Revelation because uh, we were going to figure out all the details of the end times, and we were wrong about everything. But uh, uh, I remember coming across this passage where it says there'll be no more sea. It made me sad because I, I love oceans. I, I don't know why God, what God's got against the ocean. I, look out at the, at the, uh, I love it when I can see nothing but water, when there's no land horizon out there. It gives you a sense of infinitude, like it goes on forever or something. But I was like, what has God got against oceans and large lakes? Well, I now understand that, first of all, this isn't a literal sea. And secondly, what it refers to is that throughout the Old Testament, you find that the sea stands for forces of of evil that threaten the world. You find uh, they're like forces of chaos that want to undo creation. And so you find many places in the Old Testament where God has to set boundaries to the sea, or he has to rebuke the sea or the raging waters, or he tramples on the sea or he divides the sea. Uh, And it's all referring, it was the ancient Near Eastern way of referring to uh, the reality that this world, the environment of this world, is 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 hostile to us. Uh, we 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 live in a spiritually polluted world. We're under the domain of the principalities and powers. But what we call principalities and powers, they call the sea. Here, John says there'll be no more sea, and that's good news, folks. That's good news. Uh, right now, we live in a world that we are as polluted with spiritual forces as Beijing is with smog. <laughs> you know, on a bad day. And man, it gets pretty bad over there. Seen some of that? Lord help those people. Uh, but it, it, everything's just foggy. But then, in the, in, the, in the new earth, we'll be breathing pure spiritual oxygen, and it's going to feel great. Uh, no more bondage, no more hostility, no more temptations, none of the stuff and the evil, the sickness, the disease that, that, that Satan's bring. There'll be no more sea. That's one of the reasons why it's going to be a renewed earth. And then John goes on to say this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Interesting passage. i got four things to say about this. First of all, notice that the bride comes down from heaven to earth. 
Now remember, Revelation, and I've said this several times in this series, it's a battle between truth and deception, right? Um, and, and the victory's already been won on Calvary. The only battle that's fought is the Calvary battle. Uh, all the battles that are fought in the book of Revelation are about the truth that Calvary wins versus the lie that it doesn't. Versus the lie that Babylon power wins. So it's a truth versus deception thing here. And so here, this what was being revealed here. And remember, the word apocalypse is just unveiling. It's all about unveiling truth in contrast to lies. Here is the unveiling of God's bride. The unveiling of the fulfillment of God's plan for creation. This is the unveiling of God's victory. This is what he's been after all along. He, he, here it shows the beauty of the bride. And what's significant about that is, see, the time we're in now, in the smog world we're in now, we don't always see the beauty of the bride. You look at me right now, and despite what I just said a minute ago, I am don't look like a beautiful bride. <laughs> Not just because I'm a man, but I, because I don't, I don't have, fully have the character of a bride who would be compatible with, with Jesus. That's what he's looking for, a bride who has his character and can sit on the throne with him. Um, the church doesn't often look, or even usually look, like a radiant bride. We've got all sorts of stuff on us that needs to be burned away. We, we still believe lies. We still have wounds that need to be healed. There's still stuff to be done in us. But this revelation is here telling us that someday it won't be like that. Folks, someday, someday we're going to shine. And it's going to be beautiful. We'll have the radiant character of our, of our heavenly groom. I, I love what John says, the same author, but he writes this in the epistle, 1 John 3, one of my favorite verses of the whole Bible. Where he says, see what great love... That's just love. It's great love. The Father has lavished on us. He doesn't just sprinkle it. He lavishes it. And the effect of that is this. Now we are called the children of God. Because of his great love lavished on us, we are called the children of God. And that is what we are, John's saying. God isn't pretending. He's not just calling us that. No, we really are that. Dear friends, he goes on, now are, we are the children of God. He's just got to keep driving it home because we often forget this. And what we will be has not yet been made known. Look at that. It's, we are the children of God. It just doesn't look like it right now. It's, it's all concealed. In fact, we're so far from looking like we're going to look, we can't even imagine what we're going to look like. It hasn't yet been made known. Now, we're getting a little glimpse of it here in the book of Revelation, a little glimpse of it, but it's just a glimpse. Uh, we, we don't yet conceive of what we're going to look like when, when our real child of Godness, if you will, is, is fully manifested. But then he goes on to say this. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. Somebody say amen. Amen. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. When Christ appears, the word there is to manifest or to unveil. So it's talking about the same thing that's going on in Revelation 21. When Christ is fully manifested, uh, we're going to see him as he is, for we shall be like him. Folks, that is good news. You see, when he fully appears, the real Jesus comes out, the smog is gone now, and we see the true character of God. That very character is the consuming fire, and it's going to burn up everything about us that's not compatible with him. It's going to burn away the, 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 the sin and the scars and the wounds. It's going to burn away all the failings. It's going to burn away all of the guilt. It's going to burn away all the condemnation. It's going to burn away the cataracts on our eyes. It's going to burn away the calluses on our heart. So now we can finally see him as he is. Because it's burned away everything that's not of his nature, so now we share his heavenly nature, we are like him, and therefore we share his vision, we can see him as he truly is, and now it's clear what we truly are, we really are the children of God, and it is beautiful. It is beautiful. And all, right now there's a bride, but she's got, like, she fell into a pig pen and, and got manure all over her. 
But someday she's going to take a great shower, man, and she's going to smell great. But maybe it's hard to imagine when you're right next to her now and she stinks to high heaven. But just keep in mind, she's going to take a shower. Sooner or later she's going to get cleaned up. Sooner or later she's going to look beautiful. And see, why that's good news is that it, this is a promise of God. If you are, if you're sincerely seeking Christ and have surrendered to Christ, then it means the, pro- the promise is that someday the stuff that plagues you now is not going to be there. The promise is that, and you maybe can't conceive of it right now, but you're not always going to be an alcoholic. Okay? You're not always going to have that addiction. You're not always going to uh, you know, be, be falling into the same pit. You're not always going to be uh, downloading with fear or, or, or condemnation of despair. Uh, you're not going to be carrying the stuff. Someday all the crap on us is going to get washed off, praise God. It's going to get burned away. The wounds are going to get burned away. The sin's going to get burned away. The feelings are going to get burned away. And so what it means is that when you fall, and we all fall, you get up again. You get up again because you got this promise. You're not going to lose if only you just keep hanging on to him and he's hanging on to you. You know, just you take his baby steps in that direction. When you fall, get back up because someday you're going to be free. Someday the bondage will be gone. Someday you're going to shine. You really are. Now, maybe right now you look in the mirror and all you see is the muck you fell into. But someday you're going to shine and see if you believe that, you'll keep getting up. We sing around here all the time, a saint is just a sinner who got up. <laughs> you know, you get up, and, and God continues his work on you, but you got to keep on getting up to give him a chance, and you keep moving down that road, praise God. Someday we'll see the full truth, and it won't be covered up with a bunch of deception. Someday we'll, we'll see that God has forgiven everything. We'll see that he's made us whole. We'll see that he's redeemed us. We'll see that he's brought good out of every evil thing, out of every feeling, out of everything we regretted, he brought good out of it. Rumpelstiltskin maybe can make gold out of straw, whatever it is, but God can make beauty out of ugliness, praise God. He can make something wonderful out of dust and ashes. He takes our muck and he, he weaves it into the Christ. All things will be brought together under the headship of Christ. And we'll see then how beautiful he is and how beautiful he's made us to be. Keep With that faith, you keep getting up. But when you get up, don't just now sit on your butt and wait for that future to come to you. Okay, I'm just going to wait for God to take it away. It doesn't work like that. Uh, no, you get up and start moving in that same direction. Uh, this vision of the end isn't just a vision of the end. It's a vision that we're to be bringing into reality now. And so however many times you've fallen, you get up again, and now you call out to him to help you and get a, people around you to help you start walking free from that. And you may fall again, and you get up again, but you don't sit and wait. No, he wants us to take authority over stuff. He's, he's training a bride uh, to, to rule, right? And the first thing we've got to rule is our own mind and our own hearts, our own lives. And so he empowers us to do that, but there's still a role that we play. We've got to say yes to it and, and participate with it. So you get up, and that, this is what all, all discipleship's all about. That's why John says, whoever has this hopes, they purify themselves as he is pure. Now, look what he's saying there. Because you know you're a child of God, well, don't wait for the, just sit around, not looking like a child of God, waiting for that manifestation at the end. No, this is the time now to start thinking like a child of God, speaking like a child of God, and acting like a child of God. He, he's, he, he's, he purified you, so therefore, this is the time to start moving in a purification process. You are, you have a holy, new, redeemed nature, so believe holy, redeemed nature, think holy, redeemed nature, speak holy, redeemed nature, and start living holy, redeemed nature. And yeah, you fall in the pig pen, you get up, get washed off, and keep on going. All right, but but it, it, it's we want to incarnate now, manifest now as much of the future kingdom as possible. That's what discipleship is all about. It's about becoming who we know we are. It's about becoming who we know we're destined to be, because we have this marvelous promise of God. That was the first thing I wanted to say about this passage. Here's the second thing. Notice that the the, the city bride comes down to earth. 
The bride doesn't leave earth to go to heaven. No, the, the, the city bride comes down from heaven to earth. And this is a revelation, a disclosure of the true bride here on earth. And this is where she stays. This is such an important point. It's one that I think most Christians don't get. The reason why, why is that, that in the ancient world, there's a lot of groups, a number of groups, philosophy groups and religious groups, that had a prejudice against matter. They thought matter was at least inferior, if not evil. And so they, they felt a human being was a soul trapped in a body. The body's a bad thing. You blame everything, all your problems on your body. Uh, and then when you die, then now your soul's finally set free, and you go to heaven. And that's the end of it. Or some thought you got reincarnated or whatever. But they, they looked down on the physical world. In fact, we, we know that this began to creep into the, the church at a very early time. You even find it in 1 John. Uh, when he says, uh, anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. There are people who thought God was too holy to ever participate in matter. They couldn't believe in the incarnation. So they thought Jesus was just sort of a phantom. He pretended like he was human, but he wasn't really human. Uh, it's because they had this disparaging view of matter. Unfortunately, I, I, some Christians have adopted this view. I think it's quite widespread. Not that Jesus wasn't incarnate, but they, they, they think that the earth is something that's dispensable. It's just kind of a, a little prelude thing that God's going to do away with, and then we'll have a purely spiritual heaven. And we'll be you know, disembodied souls floating around in clouds, playing harps, wearing diapers, or whatever. But see, folks, it, it's, just not a, it's, it's just not a biblical view. In Genesis 1, God creates the physical world, and he says it's good. He sees that as good. It is good. He creates human beings, physical human beings, and he sees that it is good. Um, he, he, God loves the physical world. He created it. He must love it. God loves our, his physical beings. God loves your body. Now, maybe you don't love your body, but God loves it. At least insofar as it's the physical body. Right now, right now, it's all corrupted, isn't it? it right? It's not the way it was supposed to be. And so our bodies, the physicality is good, but man, they age, and they get saggy, and they get flappy, and they get wrinkly, and they get achy. Started getting aches. I used to really know where all the aches came from. Now it's, it's, it's there, you know. It's like, you know, they don't even need an explanation anymore. I've decided to ache. That's all there is to it. You know, they, they, they get old, they get cancer, you get, you get diseases, you get eyesight starts to go, hair starts to grow where it's not supposed to be, you get hemorrhoids, and then you die. <laughs> That's human life. You can quote me on that. You get hemorrhoids, and then you die. Not from the hemorrhoids, but... Stop. Stop. Can you tell that I forgot my ADD medication this morning? I did. I'm, I, I'm, try, I'm having to censor so much. So, oh, you could go this way. You could go this way. You could say this. Or you could say this. Well, that would be really funny. Oh, shut up. Shut up. Right, anyways, did I actually say hemorrhoids? I guess I did. So, but it's the reality of the situation, you know, uh, that our bodies are in this corrupted state. We're under the bodies of principalities and powers. And even nature's all messed up. You've got animals devouring animals. You've got weather patterns that kill people. You've got Ebola and AIDS and a million other diseases and parasites and stuff that, that, that plague us. Uh, the, the creation's not the way it was supposed to be. But see, okay, right now it's kind of miserable, but that doesn't mean that matter is bad. Matter is good. God loves matter. It's just that there's something, what's the matter with matter, you know? It, 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 it's in a corrupted state. Um, and um, God's not giving up on it. God loves your body. He wants to redeem it. God loves the earth. He wants to redeem it. And someday, praise God, the promise is that we will have a resurrected body. 
an, uh, an, an, an uncorruptible body, a body that will not age, hallelujah, a body that will not sag, a body that will not be bulging, a body that will not be wrinkly and shrivelly and, and going through all sorts of aches and pains because there will be no more death. That will be a good body. And the creation will be made new, hallelujah. All the stuff that's yicky about the creation right now is going to be burned away. Uh, and that is where we are going to dwell. It is to be our, our home, this perfected earth. So every verse in the Bible that deals with our, the future state of God's people puts us here on the earth. But it's, a, it's not like a, this earth. It's a perfected earth where there's no more violence. You're not going to have these killer whales eating these little baby seals. I saw that the other day on a documentary. Those poor little baby seals. They get played with these killer whales. Well, they're going to be redeemed too, and they're going to be nice. And it's not going to have it's not going to have all the killer parasites and all the violence that's out there. And there won't be any more mosquitoes, hallelujah, because mosquitoes we all know are not salvageable; they're reprobate. Well, if they are redeemed, maybe God's grace is bigger than I can imagine. But if they are redeemed, they're not going to be these little vampires that fly around and and suck out a quart of blood like we got here in Minnesota. Uh, it will be the creation that was supposed to be, and all will be redeemed. So this earth in, in, in its perfected form is going to be our, our eternal home. God loves this earth. He's going to redeem it, and, and, and he will abide there with our redeemed bodies. But it's not only going to be our home. Here's the point I want us to see. It's going to be our kingdom, because this was part of the plan from the beginning as well. And so you find in the book of Revelation four times passages like this where it says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Four times in Revelation, it says that. Two times in other places in the New Testament, it's an important theme. Twice it says that we're going to reign with Christ. He's looking for a bride who sits on the... Oh, by the way, this message is brought to you by Coca-Cola. There you go. <laughs> Preaching American style. you got to advertise something. All right, there you go. Uh, so we're going to reign on this earth. See, if, here's why this is important. These are like... This is the bookends of human history here. We're finding at the end we'll be doing what we were told to do in the beginning. We were told at the beginning to reign on the earth, to rule over the earth and the animals. And now, in the book of Revelation, we're finally doing it as we sit on the throne with Christ. And this is a very important point. I know I talk about this a lot, um, but I do it because it's central. It's centrally important, and hardly, the church hardly ever talks about this. And even when you hear it a number of times, because we've been so conditioned by the voices out there, it gets dismissed as something that's liberal or, you know, new agey or tree huggy or something like that. And so people don't take it seriously. But this is so serious. I want us to see this. How we rule. This is a main point of the book of Revelation. We're going to be reigning on the earth, but we reign in a particular way. And the way that we reign there is the way that we're supposed to be reigning here. Now, do you remember the secret of the scroll a couple weeks ago? Which really is the key that unlocks all of Revelation. It's a question of how does God rule and how does God win? What kind of power does he use? And the answer to that is that he uses lamb power. The whole book of Revelation is the disclosure of the victory of Calvary. Uh, he rules and he wins by self-sacrificial love demonstrated on Calvary. That's the truth that confronts the lie that says that Babylon power wins. Domination, domination, coercive power, violent power. It's lamb-like power that rules. And so if we're on the throne with Christ, reigning, that means we're going to be reigning in a lamb-like way. We're to, we're, we're to reign with self-sacrificial love. Now, think about this, you guys. That means, if we're, if we're practicing this now, that we are called to sacrifice. Instead of sacrificing the earth and sacrificing animals for our own purposes, we're to be sacrificing ourselves for them. 
Think about that. And this is so kingdom, where you always are hearing about how God cares about the least of these, and what you do the least of these, you're doing unto him. It's the little things that God thinks are, are supremely important. Uh, we're to be sacrificing for them. So instead of exploiting the earth and exploiting the animal kingdom, as if they're just there to serve our needs and meet our, serve us and meet our needs, we're supposed to be serving them and meeting their needs. Now, if we do that, there's a reciprocal blessing that comes back. It comes back and blesses us. But as the leaders of this earth and animal kingdom, we're to take the initiative, right? That's what leaders do. That's, that's how Christ is our leader. He took the initiative in redeeming us. He, he's, he came under us. He gave his life for us. But we're to be sacrificing for them. And in turn, they bless us. Why don't you do the least of these? And so in that light, folks, I want to, I mean, that's radical. I, I encourage you to, if you're a kingdom person, to uh, make it your business to know what you're doing to the earth and what you're doing to animals. And please don't dismiss that as a liberal, new-agey, tree-huggy thing. That is a biblical thing. We're to be Christ-like as we rule this earth. And, and uh, know the implications of your choices. Um, if, if you're one that God allows to eat meat, that's fine. But know what the animal had to go through to get there, all right? It makes a difference. Um, do some research on industrial farms. And find that most of them, I'm not going to say all of them, but, but there's plenty of research on this, where animals are kept in little tiny cages, crammed on top of one another, treated inhumane ways, and there's nothing natural about their entire existence. They suffer from beginning to end, and then they die. It's the opposite of the kind of lordship that we're supposed to be exercising towards them. And you know, as a kingdom person, you don't want to be participating in that. And so I just encourage you to, you know, whatever sacrifice you need to make to, to avoid that, it's worth it. It, it. It's hard. To, it, it's more expensive to buy free-range food or to, to buy uh, local farm from local farming. Um, it's more expensive. You got to go out of your way. You got to look for it. But whatever sacrifice it takes, folks, it's the least we can do as the lamb-like leaders of this this animal and, and earth kingdom. And um, I bet you never guessed in your life that the Book of Revelation had anything to do with the treatment of animals, did you? But it does. Oops. There you go. But it does. Um, and it, it, he's showing us the picture here of what it looks like for us when we finally fulfill the mandate in Genesis uh, 1. We'll be reigning on the throne with Christ and we'll do it in a Christ-like way. I mean, throughout most of history, people have taken that rule word and, and used it as if we're supposed to dominate and use and exploit when actually it means the opposite of that. We're to be servant leaders. And uh, it blesses us back in, in turn. And then notice this. And this is the third thing I want to say. The city is adorned like a bride. How do you have a city adorned like a bride? Some, if you take the book of Revelation literally, someone draw a picture of that. New York City's dressed up like a bride uh, that's fit to get married to her husband. It, 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 in fact, not only is, is the city dressed up like a bride, but the city is a bride. If you look at verse 9 of chapter 21, the angel says, Hey, I want to show you the bride. And John turns in verse 10 and he sees a city. And then you have 11 verses that spell out the measurements of, of, of the city. Uh, well, what's going on here? If you take it literally, it's like everything else in the book of Revelation. If you try to take it literally, it makes absolutely no sense. But if you understand it like a Picasso symbol, it's profound and it's beautiful on a number of different dimensions. Uh, the, the city bride. The city is the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem in the Old Testament is the city of God. It's the place where God dwells. God's dwelling place. And the bride, of course, is the people of God. So this is just a symbol of God dwelling with and in his people. And this is the eternal state that we're going to be in. It's the city bride, where God dwells with us and, and, and among us. This idea of the bride is, is very important. 
You find this throughout the whole Bible. It's, a sen- it's not surprising we find it here at the end because it's found throughout the whole, the whole uh, narrative of Scripture. God is a God who's portrayed as a, a God who wants to have a husband-like relationship with the, with, with the people, and so that, that makes us the bride. And so when Jesus comes, he, he says, I am, I, I'm the, the bridegroom, which is the, the groom looking for a bride. I'm the bridegroom. I've come, and I'm looking for a bride. And that's why the church is called the bride of Christ. God li- wants a marriage-like relationship with his people that's passionate and vibrant and fulfilling, uh, where his love is replicated a, a, a among us. Now, as a lot of you know, because we've taught this here before, but in, the, in ancient Judaism, they had a, like a twofold stage in getting married. First, a couple were, were legally married. And then, uh, about a year or two later, they'd, they'd have a, a wedding. Now, that period is called a betrothal period. And um, they were, we'd have to get an official divorce to get out of it. It wasn't like our engagements where you just call off. They were legally married, but they didn't consummate the marriage until they had the wedding. And uh, uh, they would, when when they become betrothed, they'd have a little ceremony and a little feast, but it was a foretaste of the big ceremony and the big feast that they'd have when they had the actual wedding. So it was kind of a foretaste of that. And during this time, this betrothal period, uh, the the husband would go away usually and and uh, get gainful employment and build a house and do whatever was necessary to prepare for a family. And the wife would usually be taken under the wings of the other wives in the village, and she'd be taught how to be a good first century Jewish wife. And it was a time of preparation for both of them. The church is now in this time. When 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 you surrender your life to Christ, uh, we. The way it works in the New Testament is you have a ceremony, an initiation ceremony, and that's what baptism is. It's welcome to the bride. You've joined the bride. And we are we have a feast. It's the sign of the covenant. We take communion. And so when we take communion, we ought to be looking forward to the time when we're going to be seeing now the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, it would be a major feast. But it's a, it's a, for, a reminder of that. It's a reminder of the terms of our covenant. And this is the period then where Jesus goes away. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am you may also be. And that's the place he brings back here in Revelation. Uh, we don't go up there and stay there. No, he brings it here. And, and during this time, and here's the main point, we ought to be making ourselves ready. This is the main thing you do in a betrothal period. You make yourself ready, because that wedding's coming, folks. And, and we need to be ready. This is what we find all throughout the New Testament, about a dozen times, passages like this, where it says that make yourself ready, because when he comes back, uh, he wants a bride that's without spot or wrinkle. Um, we find a number of passages warning us to be watchful and ready because we don't know the day or the hour, right? And so this is the period where we are to be acquiring the kind of character that's befitting a bride of Christ. And the kind of character that is is the character of Christ. Uh, a bride who's compatible with him. What that means, folks, in a nutshell is this. that In the kingdom life, discipleship is not a negotiable thing. It's not an ancillary thing. Uh, there's no time for coasting. No, if you think you're coasting, you're actually going to be treading downward. We are always to stay hungry. Hungry for more of him, right? Hungry to, for more Christ-likeness. We all have areas to grow in. and we should, there's, there's no place where we should stop and say, okay, I've had it, I, I'm just going to coast from here on in. No, the main point of a betrothal period is for us to be getting ourselves ready. And so discipleship, being involved in spiritual disciplines, uh, always be trained to, gr- to growing, that, that's... That's a central thing that we're supposed to be doing now, getting ourselves ready, so that when he comes, he's got a bride that's fit for, for the kingdom. He doesn't want to have to burn away a whole lot of mud. He, he, we grow in our authority as we get rid of it here and now. And so discipleship is a central thing. I also want us to notice this, that the, 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 the bride is a city, as I said. 
and a city is a people group. Right? The bride is the corporate whole. It's not just you or me individually. It's us together. It's the togetherness of God's people that constitutes the bride. Now, it's important for us, and listen to this here because someone needs to hear this. In our, in our individual relationship with, with God, it's, it's, I think, important to, to have him love you as though you were the only bride. Because he loves you as though you were the only bride. He loves you as, as, though you, as much as if you were the only one he ever created. And I just get jazzed when I go to God and I can really get into that kind of love. Where he loves me, he doesn't have to, I, I don't compete with anybody for his love. No, all of his love is towards me. Because he doesn't have to spread it thin. He's got an endless amount of it. And the same is true of you. So when we sing that song, I'm God's favorite, well, that's because we all should feel like that, all right? So he loves you as though you're, you're his one and only bride. But we need to understand from a New Testament perspective, the bride is the whole of us. It's, it's, the, it's the community. It's the togetherness of God's people that, that constitutes the bride of Christ. And, and the reason why that is just so central is, is this. It means that the idea of an individual Christian being out there on their own, not connected to a larger body, is absolutely foreign to the New Testament. Absolutely foreign to it. It's antithetical to it. Um, it's, it contradicts the very concept of what it is to, to, be, the, 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 to, to, to be a bride. Uh, the, the idea of an individual Christian being out there on their own, it's like a, a part of the bride's been dismembered. Like her nose is missing. You know, picture a bride with a cut-off nose. Um, well, you know, the bride, something's missing there. It's not good for the bride. It's not, certainly not good for the nose. <laughs> If you're a nose out there listening to me, I'm telling you, I'm warning you, you're not, you're supposed to be connected to a face. That's what noses do. To be a, to be a follower of Jesus is to belong to a larger body. And I know there's a lot of folks out there, I talk to them who, they, they don't have time for the people, you know, there's all those hypocrites that go to church and all those bothersome people and, 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 you know, they, they, they just like, they love Jesus, so they have their own private time with Jesus, and, and they listen to their podcast, or they watch the television program, and that way they can choose what program they listen to, choose what kind of podcast they listen to. They can do it on their schedule. It's also convenient. You don't have to be hassled with a bunch of people. How nice. But see, that, that, that is, that's religion American style. It totally fits into our consumerism and our individualism. We are the two hallmarks of America. You can have it your way, when you want, how you want, who you want, there it is. Tailor-made, private religion. And it is easy. Yeah, that, that is convenient. People are difficult. Anytime you get around people, it's going to be difficult. Books are a whole lot easier to get along with, I'll tell you. But I can tell you this. If it's easy, it's not kingdom. Who said the king, kingdom was supposed to be easy? This is how we grow. Putting up with people, learning to, to deal with folks, that's, that's how we get refined. And the reality, folks, is this. We're part of one bride, and we need each other. We need each other. There's no way we can grow the way we're supposed to grow without one another. There's no way we can be the bride that we're supposed to be. Uh, I can't see all the spots on me. I need somebody to be watching my back. I, I need somebody who's involved in my life who can tell me when they notice I'm kind of starting to cool off. Because I won't notice it. You know, it, 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 we, we, don't, we, we all have these blind spots. We won't notice it, but we need people who care about us enough uh, and are close enough to us who do notice it and can call it out when they see it. We, we need, we need uh, each other to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, uh, the, the, to look forward to our, our wedding ceremony. We, we, need, we need each other to, to be getting ready for our wedding. We need each other to be romancing our groom in corporate worship. We need people who are there when we're falling down. We need people who are there when we're messed up and confused. We need people who are there when our marriages are, are dying. We need people who are there when our kids are acting out. We need people who are there to celebrate the good times. We need people in our life. Uh, we, we, we're supposed to belong to a larger body. And I'm not just talking about a weekend service. I'm talking about people who know you, who care about you, who are invested in you, and you're invested in them. 
And they, they're close enough to you to notice when your marriage is getting screwed up or notice when you're starting to cool off or backslide or falling into something or other. We need one another. We need one another. Uh, no, no lone rangers in this thing. Uh, this is why we have this ministry called Sojourners, uh, which is our uh, house church ministry. And I encourage you to check it out. Or if that's not for you, then if you don't have people, believers that you're walking out the kingdom with, because this is the New Testament church. It's a band of brothers and sisters who are just walking out the kingdom together and helping one another do it. If you don't have that, then I really encourage you to seek it out. Uh, get, meet other people. Make space in your life for other people, and, and it will come to you. Maybe volunteer in a ministry. That's a good way to meet people. Or go to the refuge. That's a good way. Uh, you can take whatever cultivate classes. That's a great way. Or go to the table talks that we have in all of our series. That's a great way to meet people. Or we have these events that happen, like this last Friday. That's a way to meet people. Or just hang out in the gathering area for a while. Go up and introduce yourself. That's a way to meet people. But you'll find that there'll be a connection with somebody, and then you can start doing this kingdom thing together because the bride is supposed to be joined to one another. Amen? Amen. We need one another desperately. You'll never be the vibrant bride, part of the bride that you're supposed to be on your own. And then uh, uh, the last thing I'll say, it's the last two verses here. Um, it has to do with the consummation of this whole thing. Wow, got five minutes. Pray for me here. Okay, he says, I heard with a loud voice from the throne, uh, uh, the voice was saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, praise God, or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Hallelujah. And then at the end of the chapter, it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine for it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is, the lamb is its lamp. Folks, this is the coming together of the bride and the groom, the consummation of all of history. This is what it's about. Um, you know what? While a husband and a wife consummate their marriage by having a one flesh relationship, we consummate our marriage with God by having a one spirit relationship. Paul says we become one, one spirit. And so this is what's happening here. God is with us and we are with God. There's a mutual indwelling going on that, that mirrors the mutual indwelling of, of, of the Trinity. So he's our God. He's our temple. He becomes, his glory becomes the light that we walk by. We are in him and he is in us. And this has been the goal all along. This is, this is why Jesus came, became a human being. This is why the world was created. This is why Jesus died on the cross, why he rose from the dead. It's all about acquiring a bride. From all eternity, God's wanted to pour his whole self into a bride who would pour herself into him. And so his love would now be replicated in his relationship to this other, this, this other race, and that is us. And so, folks, we, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have opened up their, their fellowship to include the bride. Uh, we, we'd be, we've married into the family of God. You talk about marrying up. Well, we married in the family of God. And so all the wealth and the joy and the ecstasy that is true of God, it now becomes ours. Hallelujah. And that's the consummation of the whole program, and it's absolutely beautiful. And Paul, Paul indicates in, in Ephesians 5 that the union of a husband and wife in the one flesh relationship is just a symbolic foretaste of the ecstasy that will be true of us when our marriage to God is consummated. It will be, that ecstasy is, of the one flesh union is just a symbolic uh, little foretaste. Now, I would have been happy to have that symbolic foretaste be the whole thing. I mean, that's, do that for eternity. That, that sounds great to me. I can't imagine anything better than that. But it's actually going to be better than that. I mean, that's just, I, it goes beyond what the mind can imagine, what the, what the, what's ever entered into the heart of a person. Uh, you can't comprehend it. It will be beyond anything we can imagine. 
Here, finally, finally, you guys, the, finally the betrothal period has come to an end. The waiting period has come to an end. This relating to God from a distance has come to an end. Finally, being under the, the oppression of the principalities and powers has come to the end. Finally, the sin struggles have come to an end. And now we see him face to face because we are like him. Now the stuff has been burned away. The scars have been burned away. The wounds have been burned away. The sorrow has been burned away. No more heartache, no more violence, no more disease, no more destruction, no more cancer, no more weather patterns that bury people alive. Uh, we will be who we were always created to be, and the world will be what it was created to be. And most importantly, we'll see Christ as he truly is. And it will be magnificent, and it will be glorious. The final thing I want to say about it is this. Paul is, or John is sharing this with the folks in the first century because they're facing likely death. They're going to be martyred. So he gives them this picture, this vision of the end. And see, why that's important is this. You'll only be willing to lay down your life if you're sure that there's another life coming that's better, you'll only be able to let go of this world and all the things of this world if you know that there's the, the, the real show is still coming. And the more real that is to you, the more willing you are to let go. I'm convinced that one of the reasons American Christians so frequently cling to stuff, we want our best life now. We want our stuff now. We like our toys now. Well, we have such trouble giving things away. Um, is because we're, on some level, we suspect that maybe this is all there is. So we want to hedge our bets. We want our best life now and later, you know? Uh, and, and so, so, you know, it's like, just in case, you know, death ends it, well, at least I enjoyed this, this time here. But see, and that's also why so many people have trouble taking seriously Jesus' teachings to love your enemies and, and to not take up uh, arms against them. It's because, uh, you know, this might be all there is. I want to make sure I hang on to it as much as possible. But when you get a vision and believe and trust that God's telling the truth when he gives us this vision of this glorious, unfathomably, incomprehensibly beautiful end of things, when you get a vision of that and believe in it, what frees you up? It frees you to live the kingdom life. You can only live a kingdom life where you're giving yourself away if you are believing that this life is not all there is. No, the real show gets started when you die. Only then does it become good news when you die. If they're really, if you get a vision of this, it's good news. And so you don't have to cling to anything. You don't have to cling to stuff. You don't have to cling to your life. And the irony is this, is when you are able to see that vision and therefore stop trying to have your best life now, you start having your best life now. Because this is the best life. Best life is a free life. A life that's not burdened by trying to grab on to stuff. All of our grief comes because we clutch. Mine! It's mine! Like little kids. Like, damn it. Oh, you, you can't have it. It's mine. I want more of it, too. No, it, it, that's what makes us miserable. When you die to that, because you know the best thing's still coming, now you're free. And that's where the joy starts coming. And the joy of giving it away and the joy of serving others and the joy, yes. That's your best life now. So you really do get to have your cake and eat it, too. But only if you're willing to give away the cake. Give away your cake and you'll have your cake and eat it. There you go. Well... All right, praise God. I encourage us, spend time, really. I have a thing I do all the time. It's, called, it's not called anything. Here's what I call it. It's prayer as a rehearsal for death, where I envision dying, and then imagine what heaven is like. So imagine heaven. See, Take the best experience you've ever had, the most loving, joyful, ecstatic experience you've ever had. Multiply it by a trillion. And realize that you've just taken a little baby step in the right direction, right? And, and, and so try to imagine that. The most beautiful thing you've ever seen, the most beautiful scene, or the most beautiful music you've ever heard, the most beautiful painting or sunset or whatever. And multiply it by a trillion and realize that that is just a little pointer sign to what the true beauty is. And so in prayer, try to envision that. And just know that it goes infinitely beyond what you're imagining. And, and as you do that, you'll, you'll notice... It, 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 
if you're trusting in this, that your clinginess to life starts to, just notice that you'll start to let go of things. And, and, and just practice letting go. Just practice letting go. Because you're going to you're gonna have to let it go anyways. Here's the memo. You die. You, you let it go. It all gets burned up anyways. So lose it now. And, um, and it frees us to live the life that God calls us to live. So anyway, just encouraging us to spend time envisioning this. Whatever problems you have will be smaller if you're envisioning that and, and, and believing it. Whatever fear you have about death will start to dissipate the more you see this clearly and the, and the more you envision this and believe in it. Uh, talked to a lady in the last service who just found out she's got Parkinson's disease. But it was overwhelming her, but now, in the light of heaven, she can deal with it. It's, again, we'll live another 30 years or however, but that is a nanosecond compared to what's going to be. And then I encourage us in this way to ask the question, are we making ourselves ready? Have you started to coast? Are you kind of going auto, autopilot? It's so easy to do. In fact, we all do it. Um, if so, challenge yourself. Let the Lord challenge you. Or hopefully you have people in your life who can challenge you. Uh, to start taking, getting ready seriously. Start taking discipleship seriously. And do it in community with others. And so if you're not in community with others, I encourage you to ask God to show you what baby steps you can take to start moving in that direction. To start taking this getting ready part of our life seriously. Because, folks, the wedding is coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's going to be great. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Would you stand? I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. I made it through without too many detours. I thought I'd have more. Good thing I... I got to figure out a way to stop forgetting that stuff. Um, when I, uh, can the prayer teams come up here? And then if you're here and have any need whatsoever uh, that could be prayed for, I, I encourage you to take advantage of this. These folks would love to pray with you. Financial, physical, relational, whatever it is. Uh, that, that'd be great. As we leave this place... Can we do it as a people who are committed? If you're, if you're not part of the bride, would you surrender to Jesus right now and you can join the bride? Tell these folks up here about it. And as the bride, as we go out of here, can we do it as a people who are committed to making ourselves ready? Because our wedding feast is coming. Can we do it as the people who have our eyes fixed on heaven and are believing in heaven and therefore letting go of all the stuff that would hold on to us in this world? Can we be a people who are committed to burning away now all that can be burned away now uh, and not waiting for it to happen in the future? Can we be faithful to him? In Jesus' name, go out and love on the world. See you guys.